A while back, the Chicago Tribune had an article about a guy named Jeff Ferreira who lived in Waukegan, Illinois. And one day he was reconciling his checkbook and uh, he called the bank, which was, I think, First National Bank of Chicago, to get his current balance. Now, he should have known what his current balance was, but that's that's another story. And he heard this computerized voice say, your primary checking account currently has a balance of $924,844,204.32. Now, needless to know, this was a surprise to him. He was one of 826 customers who were almost billionaires for a day because of the biggest error in the history of U.S. banking. The mistake amounted to almost $764 billion, more than six times the total assets of the first Chicago banking corporation at that time. Isn't that crazy? He was quoted as saying, I had a lot of people say to me that I should transfer it to the Cayman Islands and run for it. <laughs> but like most of the others, he simply re- reported the error to the bank officials who could only say that it was what? Computer program error. Don't, don't you have confidence with what your money is doing in the bank, knowing that that kind of thing could happen. What is it that you treasure in life? What is it that makes you feel secure? I mean, what would, what would, what would you do with a million dollars? What would you do for a million dollars? I mean, it's certainly no secret that our culture is overly preoccupied with wealth. But sadly, for too many people, their material wealth means more to them than their relationship to God. One day, Jesus told a parable about a guy who was looking out for number one. In this series we've been going through, we've been talking about a number of things, but the overarching foundation of the messages here is that Jesus wants to be Lord of all, every aspect of your life, every part of your being. And this guy in the Bible was told a parable. In fact, Jesus told this parable about the man because he was preoccupied with himself. His primary purpose in life was not to just survive, but to also wind up with millions. I mean, that was his focus. That's what mattered most to him. I mean, even back in the first century, our Lord Jesus Christ knew how difficult it was to keep things in perspective. Which is why over half of the parables that Jesus told, you know, did you know this? Over half of his parables were on possessions and money. So this morning, let's consider why Jesus wants us to be firmly, make sure he's firmly established as Lord of our possessions. And we're going to begin by looking at the problem. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 13, our Lord was teaching, and someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So we begin with a request, and that, that's kind of part of the problem here. Now, we don't know the circumstances. And maybe this guy's brother had been unfair. We don't have the context. Some Bible scholars suggest that the Jewish Levitical law stated that concerning an inheritance, the older brother would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger brother only a third. And so perhaps the older brother decided to just take it all. We don't know. We don't know the context. But one thing we know for sure 
since the very first century, family members have been quarreling over inheritances. And Jesus decided to use this as a teachable moment, knowing their thoughts, knowing their motives, which we talked about that before already. He realized that this problem went much deeper than just finance, just deeper than money. The problem was greed and selfishness. And in the next verse, we see Jesus' response. He replied, well, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator between you? And then he said to them, now they talk to the whole crowd. He says, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Actually, this phrase, watch out, is, is a military term, meaning to be on guard duty, to be alert. Jesus is saying there's more to life than things. And all through the New Testament, whenever the word greed appears, it's referring to an insatiable desire for more. Always for just a little bit more. And that's what Jesus condemns in this passage. Now, of course, the modern world doesn't see this as a problem. Our world would say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, everybody's greedy to some degree. I mean, why is Jesus so concerned about it? Well, I think there's four reasons. And we want to take a look at each of these. Reason number one, greed makes you captive to envy. They're so connected. Envy is wanting what others have. It's seeing somebody with something and you'd like to possess it. You come into the church parking lot and you spot a nice car or truck and say, man, I wish I had a nice vehicle like that. As a wife notices somebody being dropped off at the front door of church, she thinks, I wish my husband would drop me off at the front door of the church. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you who thinks that, man. Or you see somebody in the foyer grab the very last square donut and you wish you'd move faster, of course. But 1 Timothy 6, 9 says this. When it comes to riches, people who want to get rich, they fall into a temptation. They fall into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? Because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many griefs. So that's the first reason. Greed makes you a slave to envy. Then number two, grief also makes you captive to indebtedness. Financial counselor Larry Burkett used to say, financial tension causes more divorce than marital infidelity. He goes on to add that by far the majority of Christian couples he works with are in trouble financially because of the spending. Are you ready, guys? Because of the spending of the husband. That's just, that's just gone from preaching to meddling right there, right? <laughs> he goes on to say that women seem to spend more thing, on things like clothes and food. Men spend more on cars and boats. But the problems of both can be traced to one thing. Greed, an insatiable longing for more stuff. And as a result, guess what business is booming all across America? It's the storage business. People want and buy more than they even have the space to put it. 
Then there's a third reason Jesus warned us about greed, and that is because greed can lead to theft. When our appetites become too big for our checkbook, well, we, we take what we cannot buy. Police in Illinois accused a Walmart cashier of buying merchandise from the store with stolen credit card numbers from customers. The law enforcement officer said the cashier did make our job a little bit easier because she identified herself on the receipts so she could get her employee discount. <laughs> and then number four, greed can cause a loss of eternal perspective. And this is the greatest problem, of course. There are some serious consequences here. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul's words from Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. He says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, a, a foolish talk or coarse jo joking, which are out of place. But rather there should be thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, no impure or greedy person for such a person is an idolater. They have, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Wow, that kind of puts it in a real serious category, doesn't it? So here's what we need to ask ourselves. Just a couple of questions. First, what is the priority of my life? What is number one? Is my disposition determined by the stock market? or what it does from day to day. You see, we must never allow Satan to draw us into placing more importance on the stuff of this world, because it can cause all kinds and sorts of problems when we have an appetite for the wrong things. And then the second question we have to ask is, do we possess things, or do our possessions, do our things possess us? Back to verse 16 of chapter 12, he goes on. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And so he thinks to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger barns. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, ah, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. Now you can easily see this guy was ambitious. But that wasn't the problem. Someone has wisely said, I thank God I can live in a country where dreams can come true, where failure is often the first step to success, and where success can be just another form of failure if we forget what our priorities should be. And on the basis of that definition, if we were to look at this man in a parable, we would call him a successful failure. He, was, he succeeded, 
but he failed. And in the Bible, in fact, the heading I have in my Bible for this is the parable of the rich fool. But regardless of what you want to call it, we need to learn from his example what not to do. And, and this is not easy for us. For throughout this parable, you know, this guy, this is the guy's living the American dream. He's increased his holdings. He's enjoying upward mobility. He's successful. This guy's ambitious. He has great plans. But in the end, it's very apparent, he lost out. He lost sight of what was truly important. He was self-focused completely. And Jesus tells the story in such a way that when you look at it closely, we see selfishness more than we see accomplishment. Listen to the pronouns that are in verse 17 through 9. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. I think we can do that. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, but ah, I'll know. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. So take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Who was this guy thinking about? He was thinking only of one person. Number one. Got to look out for number one. You ever heard that? He thought nothing of eternity. He was in the process of establishing his own little personal empire, and his primary quest was to have financial independence and just take it easy the rest of his days. And what's so wrong with that? No, you know what? Nothing. There's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with trying to feel secure, be secure. The problem is, is he was doing it all for the wrong purpose. I mean, you think about it. If your life ended today, would you have handled your God-given positions wisely or foolishly? One time Jesus asked a crucial question that was quoted by three of his biographers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all mentioned this. Here was the question he asked. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Someone paraphrased this passage by saying, He who prepares only for this life but makes no preparation for eternity is wise for a moment but a fool forever. Now Jesus follows up this illustration by giving a solution. And keep in mind, He's not saying you can't have ambition. He's not saying you can't have lofty personal goals. You know, you need to look at the whole parable in a context. He's not condemning uh, selfishness, not ambition. He's condemning selfishness, not ambition. And all through the book of Proverbs, all through the Bible, we see this applauded as long as it honors God. Ambition is good as long as it honors Him and it's for the right reasons. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, uh, talk, look at the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. Has no commander, has no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer, gathers its food in the harvest. See, Jesus is saying that complacency and selfishness are the enemies and should be avoided. But ambition and proper priorities can be embraced. But the guy in our text is, 
He just wanted to coast. And he did, to the point that he wasn't prepared for death. He wanted to kick back and enjoy life until the end. And Jesus says in verse 21, you know, this is how I believe with anyone who stores up for him things for himself, but is not rich towards God. Now, there's three solutions presented here, and I want to summarize those and we'll close. All right, solution number one, acknowledge that everything belongs to God. Got to start there. You know, when we come into this world, we don't come in with much, except we holler and yell and we're probably hungry, but that's it. Some of us are still hollering and yelling and probably hungry. I don't know. But the reality is we've got to acknowledge that everything comes from God. One of my favorite authors, Richard Foster, wrote, one of my, uh, God's ownership of everything changes the kind of question we ask in giving. Instead of asking, how much of my money should I give to God? A faithful Christian says, how much of God's money should I keep for myself? Totally different. Totally different. The Apostle Paul wrote the following from a prison cell. Philippians 4, verse 12. No, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Why? Because I can do everything, what? Through him who gives me strength. So we acknowledge, first of all, that everything belongs to God. Then solution number two. You practice generosity by modeling it for everyone. Teach your children. Teach your grandchildren stewardship principles when they're young in order to encourage them to save and to give and invest, etc. The most successful way to pass on biblical principles to others is to model those principles. And we as adults, that's something we need to consider. The Old Testament told God's people to tithe or give 10% of their resources. The New Testament raised the bar and just simply says, give as you've been blessed. And let me encourage you. You know, over the years, I have seen absolutely amazing things done by this congregation without having to be poked and prodded and guilted into anything. We've never had to do that. Church has never had a financial crisis because of mismanagement. We've simply told you where the offering box is, and you found it. And it's really, really amazing to me. And I thank you. I commend you. Over the years, we say the reason we say so little about giving is because we don't need to. You folks have been one of the most generous congregations I've ever been privileged to serve. And as we model that, that tradition will continue on into the future. This solution number three, you live your life with eternity in mind. Live your life with eternity in mind. Don't try to keep up with everybody else. Don't be concerned about it. Don't follow the preoccupations of this sinful world. In fact, that's the problem. In this parable, this guy, it wasn't his wealth. It wasn't his belongings. His problem was that he'd left Jesus out of his life. He had no use for him. And as we said over and over and over in this series, Jesus wants to be what? Lord. Lord of every aspect of our existence. Over the last two years, some of us have been all too familiar with this reality. Here it is. This is the reality. You ready? Life is short. We could die any day. 
You could die any moment. And then what happens to all your stuff? The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. And because we don't know when death will knock, we need to live each day with eternity in mind. Yes, we live in, at least at the moment perhaps, we still live in one of the most prosperous nations on the planet. Check, check back with me in a few years and we'll see if that's the same. But it is interesting that it's still the dream of most of the rest of the world to come to this country. We don't have a border crisis for no reason. Someone from a third world country comes to the U.S. for the very first time and they were riding through a neighborhood and they watched as a man backed out of his garage, backed his car out, and he just shook his head. And he says, you Americans have everything. You even have houses for your cars. It's, it's incomprehensible what we throw away every day when the rest of the world watches us. Which is why Jesus' words in Matthew six nineteen through 21 are so countercultural to so many. Listen to this. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Do not do that. Store up for yourselves instead treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And then he said in Luke 12, 48, For everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And for the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. The message paraphrase puts it this way. Great gifts mean great responsibility. Greater gifts mean greater responsibility. Have you been blessed in your life? Jesus is to be Lord of all, including our possessions. Many, many years ago, there was a missionary named David Livingston. He spent much of his life, if not most of it, in Africa, serving the people there. But when he finally died, some representatives from the mission that he was working with came to get his remains and take him back to America. And the African people said, well... You know, we have no problem with you taking his body. But we're going to bury his heart here in Africa. Because this was what his first love was. Now the question I have as we close is simply this. If we died today, well, most of us would probably know where they put our bodies. Some of y'all, I mean, I've got a spot picked out already over at Maple Grove. It's right there on the hill. Uh, my wife's going to be there too someday. She's going to outlive me, probably. So you watch carefully that she doesn't bring anybody else with her, when she? <laughs> when she you know. If we die today, most of us would know where we're going to put our body. But here's the question. This is the bigger question. Where would they bury your heart? What's number one? What's the first thing you think about when you think of this message that you've heard today? Where would they bury your heart? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunities you give us every single day.
lessons learned, lessons taught, lessons passed on, opportunities, blessings that you give us. Lord, I just pray as we draw, we're drawing close to the end of this series, Lord, that you would continue to reinforce the necessity, our absolute requirement for us to be faithful to you is that you are Lord of every aspect of our life. And especially this one, because we Americans do have a love affair with stuff. So, good Lord, help us to temper that with wisdom, insight, to follow your instructions on how we do what we do and not the world's example. And that's our prayer as we move forward into the future, that we would let you guide your church to be the church you want it to be. Mm-hmm. It's yours. It's not ours. Mm-hmm. And we thank you for the privilege that you grant us to serve here and all the exciting things that have happened in all the years that Maple Grove has been in existence. And we love you. You are so faithful, Father. Mm-hmm. Now we pray, Father, that you would help us to be faithful as well. Because at the heart of faithfulness is your love to share and give. In Jesus' name. Mm-hmm. That's our prayer. Amen.